Hello and welcome to the In Squash Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. This is episode 204, and today we've got a really good one, a really interesting chat with Ahad Raza of the AR Performance Squash YouTube channel. And we come on, uh, we, we talk at great length about several aspects of the, the mostly the pro, gra- pro game uh, as it uh, relates to uh, his uh, YouTube channel. And if you haven't taken a look at it, please do. There's a lot on there. Most recently, though, uh, actually, Actually, most recently, Sebastian Bomales uh, has a he has a great chat with him and goes in depth, uh, does an in depth analysis on his game with Sebastian, and uh, also he discusses he has a, a very uh, very interesting in depth analysis of several players. But the one that I, that caught my eye was uh, Jan Shirkan, and as it turns out, there's a connection between uh, that analysis and uh, how uh, Ahad sort of trained himself to become a squash player. You'll hear about that on the podcast but a great episode there with Joey Barrington, Mike Way, uh, all sorts of technical analysis stuff that he's put together. He's a squash uh, professional himself and, and former PSA player. So uh, he has uh, plenty of intel and a very uh, unique uh, way of looking at things and uh, great analysis, deep dive analysis on a lot of aspects of the game. And we take a deep dive today into several different topics including uh, the upcoming season, the 2021 season, which, which has gotten off to a bit of a slow start uh, with only one event so far, but it's going to pick up some speed here in February, March, and April. We've got several events, Squash on Fires coming up, Windy City, Canary Wharf, uh, and so on and so forth. A lot to look forward to coming up, and we talk about that. And uh, may Paul Cole, with him being number one, what his feelings are, can he maintain uh, that spot throughout the year, and uh, several other players nipping at his heels. And then, uh, of course, we take a look at the women's side. We also talk about Jancher. Uh, Khan, uh, the video that uh, Ahad put out, which is fantastic. And uh, Ahad sort of first came to my attention when I saw his piece. Uh, he's, he has two videos on uh, Mustafa Saul, and I highly recommend that you uh, get out there and watch both of them. And uh, we discuss uh, his views on Mustafa, the issues that um, he's had recently with his movement, uh, the conduct game match against Yusuf uh, Solomon, and then, of course, the ban uh, for three months from the PSA tour. We talk about that, and as well, his thoughts on how the PSA handled it, as well as mine. Uh, and so much more. I know you're going to really, really enjoy this one. I know I did. It was a great chat, and I hope to have him on again at some point down the road. Uh, Ahad Raza on the In Squash podcast, episode 204. Right, uh, Ahad, uh, it's fantastic to have you uh, on the podcast. We talked about it uh, a few months back, and uh, it's finally uh, come to fruition. You are of the uh, AR Performance Squash Advantage uh, YouTube channel fame, which uh, you know I've seen quite a few of your videos, and they're they're fantastic, ranging from uh, technical squash stuff to having the profile uh, high profile players and guys like Joey Barrington most recently, uh, amongst other things. So. Uh, First of all, uh, great to have you uh, on here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Jerry, for uh, for having me. You know, it's funny because I'm I'm normally the one interviewing other people, and today I'm on the flip side, so I'm excited to see how this goes. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, but you've had uh, recently. You've had on uh, Joey Barrington, uh, Mike Way. Uh, yes, you've had, you've had obviously your the Mustafa Saul uh, episode. Uh, and right. uh, you've had other you know technical stuff on so if you don't yeah. mind just give us a yeah. firstly a, a bit of a backstory uh 
on yourself, you know, your squash background. Absolutely. Absolutely. So my story is a little bit different from most of the other guys. I started playing when I was closer to 14 or 15 and I taught myself how to play by sitting in my bedroom, watching videos in slow motion, frame by frame of Jahangir Khan and John Cheikh Khan. I'm originally from Pakistan. So they were kind of like my idols, my heroes. And uh, I never had a coach when I was young and I started late. So I would sit there and I'd have a racket in my hand and I would kind of go frame by frame, emulating their swing to try to learn the technique that they were hitting with. And then I would end up going to a community center near my parents' home at the time. I was like a five minute drive and I just go practice solo. So I taught myself how to play like that. I didn't play any juniors because I started so late and then I really picked it up in university. And I just, I just dedicated and committed myself to it because I fell in love with the game. And several years later, I kind of completed a master's degree. I worked in a financial institution, but I kept playing squash because that was the one thing that I was like really passionate about. And then eventually kind of like how you said a moment ago, before we started recording this, I eventually ended up getting to like a top 10 national level. And uh, I was playing some PSA stuff as well. My, my rank never reflected my level. My rank reached 250 ish, I think at the highest, uh, but I only played PSA for about three years. So I kind of skipped a little bit there. My journey was interesting because I worked at a financial institution for almost eight years. And when I turned 30 in uh, 2016, I said, if I don't go play PSA, I'm going to regret this for the rest of my life <laughs> because it's a dream that I'm never going to get to live out. So that's when I decided to leave my job. I went to go play PSA. I played for like two, two and a half years, three years before the pandemic hit and the lockdowns came. And then my daughter was born right around then as well. So it kind of seemed like the perfect time to, to yeah. shift away from the PSA stuff. So I ended up getting to a level where I was consistently taking games off of guys that were as high as like 70 in the world. Um, but I couldn't, like, I couldn't beat them. They were, they were a bit more consistent than me, a bit more accurate than me. They were mentally tougher than me at the right stages and all of that. But, uh, that was kind of my journey of squash. And, um, yeah. And more recently, obviously, since I, since I left my job at the bank, I transitioned into more coaching. I had always been coaching, but I started doing more. And then a year ago, I was just sitting here during the pandemic when everything was locked down in Canada. So I'm in Ontario. I know you said you're originally from Canada. I'm uh, in Milton, just outside Toronto. Okay. So yes. <clears throat> everything is closed. And I said, you know, I love this game. I love analyzing this game. And I feel like I my passion will come out in different ways because I love teaching it. So I said, you know what, let's just make some YouTube videos and see if anything comes of it. And I made one, I put one out. It seemed to get some traction. I think the very first one I put out got like 700 views or something, which I was like, whoa, that's, that's kind of neat for just a random <laughs> attempt. <laughs> and the one thing kind of led to the next. And like you said, most recently, Joey Barrington was on. Uh, I just released a pretty in-depth video talking about mindset, technique, all of that kind of stuff with uh, Sebastian Beaumalet from France, yeah, yeah, who's yeah. world number 41. Yeah. Uh, just we, recorded uh, one. I saw him playing the last event and he, uh, or a few events back. Yeah. He played really well. I forget who he played, but he, one of the top guys in the top 15 and yeah. he played extremely well, almost won. That's right. Yeah. He played Rafael Kandra. So in that, uh, in that video that we, we created together, we, it was an interesting one because we took a slightly novel approach where I did a bit of a coaching style analysis on that match before we chatted. And then in that video that we recorded together, I, I delivered my 
analysis to him, almost like from a coach's perspective. And then we went through some of the the technical challenges. And then we talked about a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's a really, really in-depth video where people can learn a lot if they're passionate about the game. Well, you might, you might have something here. This is a fair, you, you could have other pros knocking it, knocking at your door, asking you to sort of break it down for them, you know, where, where right. do I go? Maybe Mustafa will call you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that'll be fun. You know, okay. it's it's interesting because after, so I, so I made two videos. I know we're going to talk about Mustafa more, but I made two videos about Mustafa's movement. One several months ago after a match that he had with Tarek Moment, which was pretty feisty. And yeah. then another one more recently after the match with Yusuf Suleiman. And in the first one, I will admit I was not as impartial as I would like to be. I probably took a slightly harsher stance towards his movement. And then I've been going through my own personal evolution, my own personal growth. And I realized, I recognized that afterwards. And I said, you know what, if I'm in a position where there are on some occasions, you know, in, on those uh, Mustafa videos, like 15,000 people or 13,000 people viewing them, I have a responsibility to lay things out in an appropriate manner. And that's why in the second video, I was, I really consciously tried my best to, to be as impartial as possible, but at the same time, emphasize the ideas that he is a young guy. He is learning. He has a lot of pressure on him. He's a phenomenal player. Like he has so much potential at such a young age. There are a couple of things that I think he needs to clean up and that will, and those, you know, even if he doesn't clean up some of those movement pieces, He's still going to be a phenomenal player, yeah, but absolutely. I think the legacy side of it and all of that stuff, like the way you think of Rami Ashour, right? Let's use him as an example. Or you think of uh, even Ali Farag in the future, Mohamed Al-Shrabagi, you think of those guys. Uh, let's use Rami Ashour because he's like the best example. He, his game was so passionate, so clean, so dynamic, so fair, and everyone loved him. Like you couldn't hate him. <laughs> like no yeah. one could hate Rami Ashour's game. Yeah. And not only do you have the skill, but you have, you show the fairness, you show the passion, you show all of that stuff. And that's what makes you that long-term legend, right? I think for Mustafa to get to that level, if that's an ambition of his, I think there are certain things maybe that he could reform slightly. Mm. Um, but, you know, like some of the other stuff that he does, like his celebrations and all that kind yeah. of stuff, he's a young guy, he's celebrating, that's cool. <laughs> Well, that's, uh, I mean, that's something that's missing. Uh, we haven't, I, yeah. mean, that, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but yeah, you, you, we had not seen a player take a shirt off and throw it in right. his hands before. Right. Oh, what? That, that, that's great. Uh, for, for the younger people, especially, uh, that I'm sure right. a lot of the younger uh, enthusiasts would have uh, embraced that. The, uh, the right. traditionalist amongst us uh, may not, but... Uh, and and that's it right like you're 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 getting this point now where there's this old school thought process and mm. that old school mentality like never wants change right you want all whites <laughs> like that's a yeah. that's a drastic example but like all whites uh very structured very gentlemanly and all of that and and there's definitely value in several of those aspects um yeah, i think it's finding the balance thing, though i find a solve despite his movements to be yes. very sort of respectful mm-hmm. with the officials, uh, not so much with his movement in terms of the players, but also yeah. with players. He doesn't sort of get in their face during the match or shout at them. Or, right. You know, he, you know he, he's relatively mild-mannered in that way. 
Right, right. And that's interesting. Well, let's, because... let's talk about that a little later when we get yeah. to the part. But I, one thing I noticed in amongst the videos that you had, and you talked about your you know, growing up and analyzing, uh, and yeah. this is where that, that came from. One of yes. the videos you have is of uh, Jancher, I think. Uh, yes. Anger and Jancher. And he, right. Jancher, I mean, I, I got to meet and go to a coaching camp with Jahangir and I got to meet him and get on court with him. And that was awesome. And to Amazing. me, greatest player of all time, I think is Jahangir. But right. Jancher, I think is an enigma. He just played like no one else. And I, and I think no one else has played like him since. Right. Uh, right. What, what, how would you describe uh, the beauty of Jancher's game? Just summarizing it in terms yeah. of the analysis that you created there. Well, John Shearer's game was awesome because, you know, when he first started, he was all about just, he was a sponge. <laughs> he, he was just used his movement, retrieved, 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 wore people down. And he didn't have that much kind of dynamic aspect of shot making and all that kind of stuff. Like Jahangir was the first one to bring in that. Well, he wasn't the first one, but he really started using that volley drop really well. He started, you know, applying a lot of force and pressure on his opponents. John Shearer was the opposite. It was like sponge retrieval. So I think John Shearer's evolution was really, really cool because as his body, unfortunately, started giving out with the knee issues and stuff mm -hmm. like that, he was forced to not be able to rely on his movement as effectively and just retrieve. And he had to develop those attacking balls. And that's where that volley drop came in, the counter drops. Volley like, drop off the serve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reach forward. Serve, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not many people do that today even. Like, right. Yeah. Right. And it's really effective if you use it yeah. at the right time. So, yeah. but you know, the thing that John Sher also had was that his, not just his movement ability, but his ability to read the game was mm. just second to none. Yeah. And, you know, even guys like, I think Rami has mentioned John Sher as being someone who he's aspired to move like, and he's learned from, I think Ali Farag has a similar sentiment about John Sher as well. Mm. So it's, well, uh, yeah. Far Farag's one of the guys who comes close. I think he comes closest to Jan mm -hmm. in terms of reading the game because he when we watch him play he just seems yeah. to be where the ball is going going to go next right Jan right. was there more than a lot he was always like that yeah yeah I remember I think Mike Way was telling me a story once where he said or no it wasn't Mike Way it was uh Paul Price I heard the story not directly from Paul Price but through someone else uh, a cousin of mine who used to train at the Toronto Racquet Club at the time. Um, and Paul Price apparently played John Cher once. And he, he's like, I hit the best shot I've ever hit. You know, the most deceptive shot I've ever hit. And he turned around and John Cher was hitting that ball like before he could <laughs> even get back to the team. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, yeah. you know, like those sorts of stories are not uncommon when it comes to John Cher. And so where and does I'm that sure, come from though? Like how was yeah. he able how was he able, in your estimation, yes. uh, through your analysis, how was he able to achieve that? Well, you know, I don't remember who I was talking to about this the other day, but I think there is there's this natural ability to read the game, which sort of comes through with practice, by watching pros, by doing all of that. But then I think there is also this deliberate element that one can train. So, you know, there's several layers to this. So if someone hits a really tight ball, let's say into the front left corner, you can get a pretty good sense of the options your opponent has from that position. And as a result, you can start cheating or poaching over to cover that ball. So let's say I play a backhand volley drop and it's like half an inch off the left-hand side wall. My opponent doesn't have too many attacking options on the cross court. So 
I'm naturally going to hover over a little bit to the left side of the court because they're probably going to play straight counter drop, maybe a straight lob. If they're really skilled, they might be able to squeeze a little trickle boast out of there. So a big part of it comes down to how tight your shot making is and then having an understanding of what options your opponent has uh, based on their skill level. And then there's the whole thing of being able to read their body. So are they coming in with a more closed stance? Are they coming in more open? What is the natural angle going to be uh, based on the way they hit? So there are all these like little calculations that are taking place in the brain and you're not consciously calculating all these things when, when you're retrieving that ball, it's through all of the practice that you have uh, done in training that makes that conscious calculation from training become your subconscious sort of uh, reaction or response when you're in the match. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, and then like the guys Dean's gambit kind of thing that he had going on. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. Right. You yeah. like, okay, I have this person in this position. I know their option is a or B and there's a 90% chance that it's going to be a, so I'm going for that. And yeah. Ali Farag does the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like he goes over on the, like on the volley, especially on the backhand a ton. And sometimes there have been occasions where guys who are reading him well and seeing him move when they go cross Farag has to do a lot more work to cover that cross. Uh, yeah. So if the person can, if his opponent can be aware of that, that's where Farag gets in a bit of trouble if he's ch- cheating or poaching too much. Um, mm. But but again, he's he's hedging his bets. He's yeah. saying there's a 75% chance this is coming here and I'm willing to take that chance because my movement is so strong that even if it goes somewhere else, I can cover that next ball. Yeah, and that that was the, uh, the beauty of uh, Jancher's mu- movement. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's kind of my, my take on John shares game. And, and he's just, again, a great example of adaptation, right? When the knees gave out, when the game started changing, he completely adapted to it and he started attacking yeah, he, just like everyone else. It was so much fun to watch later in his career because he had so right. many weapons uh, and he was still move. I mean, with his movement and ability mm-hmm. to read the game, he still moved well. Yes. And then he became a little bit more chirpy with, with the, uh, with the <laughs> right. officials, which was, uh, I, I found to be very entertaining. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. He had such a meek voice too, right? Yeah. Like when he would start talking <laughs> back, yeah, it was a soft voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why let? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a great, there was a great, um, I don't know if you heard the story, the Simon Park uh, story. He tells it a lot. Um they were, it was during a tournament and they were having a, a beer or something a, after the event and they were mm-hmm. going through the rankings list Okay. and Jan, Jancher was there and they go, oh, yes, uh, yes, Chris Robertson there. Yes. Uh, Simon Park. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> and then there's Stephen Meads. Who is Meads? He said, <laughs> <laughs> and Meads was sitting there. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Who is Meads? <laughs> Maybe, oh. maybe he was joking maybe not I, he I might have yeah i don't know he did <laughs> he did have uh mike way tells a hilarious story about john share he shared it in the video i did with him too where he said he was played mike qualified for one of the psa events in canada mm. and he was slated to play john share first round and their match was supposed to start at 6 p.m or something like that and the tournament organizer comes up to john share right before he and mike are about to go on and he asks him mr khan will you be joining us for dinner and John Shear says, oh, why are you asking? Well, he said, the kitchen closes at 6.30, so we wanted to make sure if you were going to be there. 
and he just kind of looks over and Mike is within hearing distance and he says, yes, 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 I'll be there. And Mike was just like, what? I'm sure he was. And, and Mike said he made his reservation. He made dinner. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, like he had that ability and Mike was, you know, he was no slouch on court. He no, was a pretty no, solid player. And yeah. uh, to, to have that confidence to say, hey, yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be there within half an hour. I haven't even stepped on court yet, but I'll be there to catch dinner. I mean, that's just, about Mike Way, though, I mean, I've had him on the podcast twice, and both right. episodes were absolutely uh, mind blowing. But uh, we won't, you know, we'll go there later, maybe. But uh, sure. just a class, uh, class guy, and, class act. Yeah, you know, he sees the game uh, in a kind of a different way, a very uh, unique way. But uh, he expresses yes. it so well. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It's all those years, right? Like it's the years of processing, analyzing, studying it that have given him so much perspective. And he's been around like the highest level of the game for so long from Jonathan Power and at that time, Graham writing and Shahir Razik. And then obviously at Harvard, he's seen a bunch of guys like Ali Farag was at Harvard with him as well. Um, So, you know, he's been around the game and obviously being on court with John Shea and Jahangir and competing against them and stuff like, you know, you have uh, decades of wisdom there. Absolutely. Well, uh, as uh, Sal Goodman uh, uh, would say, let's get down to brass tacks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, so uh, the 2021 20, 2022 uh, season uh, mm-hmm. is off to a bit of a slow start. We've had one event, uh, and Paul Cole won that, and he mm-hmm. also uh, took over number one spot in the, in the rankings. So, I mean, you, you had an episode where I think you did a sort of a breakdown of of his evolution uh, over mm-hmm. the last year or so. So firstly, um, I mean, personally, I really, to be honest, I, I knew he'd be contending, but I didn't yes. see this coming. I didn't see him taking number one, but having, right. having changed the game, the way his game, the way he has, it's not surprising to see it happen. So did yes. you just wondering if you were you surprised uh, at all by the fact that he uh, took over number one and then, um, yeah, let's start with that. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul, I love Paul Cole for the reason that he is the inspiration for everyone, right? Like Paul Cole, I think there was an interview that the, he did with Joey Barrington recently that they put up on uh, Squash TV and on Facebook as well. And when Paul Cole was a junior, like he was out of the world junior championships in like the second round of the tournament where guys yeah. like Ali Farag and stuff were reaching the finals. So he has had this tremendous consistent work ethic and this desire to keep studying the game and improving day after day after day. And that is why, in my opinion, he is the greatest source of inspiration for any of us to show us that anything is possible. Because if he can do 10 years of consistent effort to go from being ousted in the second round of the world junior championships where Ali Farag reached the finals to now beating Farag and becoming world number one as of March, I mean, that's, uh, that's inspiration for any of us, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, going, coming from where that, where it came from, yeah. who's a world juniors to number one in the world. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I wonder, and, and the, wonder if that's happened before, like so, someone as a junior who wasn't so, you know, usually the, mm-hmm. most of the guys are relatively highly regarded, but, uh, right. Yeah. I wonder, uh, if he's a first. Yeah. But yeah, I don't, I don't know about that. Like I know there, it's funny. Cause there's like, it goes both ways. So there are guys, I think in that same junior tournament, there was a guy named uh, Amar Khalifa maybe who won that world junior championships and beat Ali Farag in the final. But 
like Amar, for example, doesn't even compete anymore. So, you know, you have that side of the coin where there are people who were phenomenal as juniors, but then fell off either due to injury, uh, lack of motivation because of being pushed so hard when they were younger, Uh, many different factors, priority shift. And then you have guys like Paul who are just so consistent and committed that after a decade, they just make incremental improvements and reach where they are. So with Paul, like, you know, everyone knows this, he's Superman for a reason, like he's fitness is his foundation. And yeah, right. But like at that highest level, you can only get so far with the fitness and your body can only handle so much of that. So seeing Paul at first add in that awesome counter drop, for example, in the front corner, both forehand, backhand, that was kind of like the first layer of him starting to attack more. Then he started and before when he would volley midcourt, it was mostly volleying deep. Then he started volleying short as well. Then he started volleying short with angles. And, you know, you could see these pieces being like layered on one after the next. And that's what you need. Like he had this. And meanwhile, he, he basically his basic game hasn't changed, but he's thrown right. all this stuff in. Right. Exactly. Would you agree with me there? Yeah. 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 Like, so he had the foundation of fitness and length right? You have that foundation and just that got him to like a top 10 level, (laughs) which is crazy. But he was so heavily dependent on his fitness that like that's going to start hurting. And I think even in that interview with Joey Barrington, he said, you know, I would be cramping. My quads would be cramping. Like my body could, it was really hard, even though he was that fit because he was being made to do so much work. Like that's not a sustainable strategy over the long run. Mm -hmm. So he had to go out and say, and and with, uh, you know, Rob Owen over there, he's doing this like amazing work where he's, tactically breaking it down and saying, okay, Paul, like I'm assuming I haven't spoken to them, but I'm assuming he's saying you can do this, but you can only do this for so long, right? Like you're 29, you can only grind it out for so long. And if you want to consistently be at that level and consistently beating these guys, you need options. You have to hurt them. You can't just absorb and try to counterattack. You have to initiate as well. And I think that's the layer of the game that is added now with the actual, with the attacks from mid mid and front court. Um, So to me, you know, I never, so it's fine. Like, I'm not the kind of guy who speculates on, is this guy going to become world number one? And like, you know, I'm not really like a betting kind of guy in that sense, yeah, but Rob I do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But for me, I'm like, well, okay, I see I see that he added this layer in. And then you in the next tournament, he comes and now he's adding as part of another layer in. And you're like, okay, wow, okay, this guy's making consistent progress over here. And yeah, you that's the part. It. In every event last year, he, he grew and he became yes. better and better and better uh, right. each time out. And now we're, it's going to be a good test to see, you know, like the, the rest of the guys like Ali and Muhammad and all these guys are going to say, okay, well now Paul isn't just going to be a sponge and retrieve. Now he's going to be doing all this attacking. So it's going to be interesting to see how they shift their strategy so that, you know, maybe they're not opening the court up too soon. They have to be a little bit more conscious about how accurate their length and width is because now there's the threat of being attacked off of the volley more, you know, stuff like, so it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see how these guys uh, play in, over this next year. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, I, I mean, Al, Ali is consistent. Mohammed's consistent, yeah. but, but uh, you know, something tells me that that Paul's going to have something. Uh, you know, he he's going to be there for for a little while, unless someone else, uh, like a Diego, or right. maybe even Joel Macon, or or, uh, yeah. or one of the other young, obviously Mustafa, Asal, uh, yes. or one of the other. There are several guys who could upset the, that apple cart there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I think Diego has a lot of potential. I think his mm-hmm. fitness has always been a little bit questionable and his consistency yeah. because of that. 
I think if he can get that in order, like he's also another guy who just makes the game look easy, right? He's probably, yeah, he's the smoothest one out there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And it it doesn't look like he's ever really moving that fast, but he gets to everything. Like uh, he's impressive to watch. I think um, there, yeah, there are several players, like you mentioned, right. That are in that in contention. I just don't think any of them are quite as consistent as uh, Paul and generally as consistent as Ali Farag is as well. Mohammed, I hope, comes back really strong because the last few months he's looked like there's something going on physically. Um, I don't know what it is, but there's... For me, it it just seems like... uh, I I don't know if those guys, having been number one for as long as they they have, Mm -hmm. are they as hungry as the other guys? Yeah. I mean... Ali, he'd been, he just had a baby, you know, uh, yes. number one for a while. Mohammed been, num- been number one for a while. One, they've won every title out there. Um, yeah. So are they as hungry as the guys that are coming up? Uh, I, and I, something tells me no, but uh, they, right. you know, they were champions for a reason. So right. you know, they might have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because when you're number one, presumably you might, get a little bit lazy sometimes you might not have the same drive to keep pushing and staying ahead of everyone but after losing the number one spot there might be that extra fire that comes in to now say hey what the heck's going on like i'm gonna take this thing back so it'll be really cool because if you have two three guys battling for that number one spot month a month that just makes things so interesting because they're all pushing each other to get better right yeah, and then well, you have so these younger guys, guys out there, like uh, Ferris Tosuki. When when he won he, oh, last, yeah. I forget what he won a couple of events in Egypt. Yeah. He just looked like there's nobody going to beat him. There's no one going to beat him. Yeah. <laughs> but then he's injured, or maybe he he suffers a little bit uh, uh, mentally sometimes. But uh, uh, just to me, like he he looked at that time when he was winning, right. he looked almost like he would be the the heir apparent. Right, right. Yeah, Ferris is not like, see, that's the thing at that top level, you could be uber talented. But if you don't have that mental consistency, and you don't have you can't stay even keel. um, It's so hard, because then you just, you know, it's one or two little mental blips. And the other guy has won that game yeah. at that level. Like it, that's it. That's why Joel Macon, you mentioned Joel Macon. I think Joel Macon has a ton of potential. It was a bit upsetting to see that he got injured uh, yeah. a, f- yeah. a couple of months, maybe a month or two ago, but it seems like he's like coming right back. He posts some little videos on social media showing that he's doing some posting. He's, uh, he's in the draw for squash on fire. I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One in Washington. I saw and, his that's right. But that's he, right. He's sort of the, he's one of the, he's like a Paul Cole. He, I think he needs to develop, a, a bit more like Paul did uh, yes. an offensive game because he, he, he just, everything yeah. just keeps coming back. Exactly. And it's, yeah. and it seems like Joel to me has been doing some of that. Like, I think he started developing some more of the attacks. Um, I, yeah, like he, he's still in that developmental phase. Like he's another guy like Paul where he's been spending years making incremental improvements. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, now on the women's side, uh, I think uh, there's no question. There's Nor El Sherbini and then oh, everyone yeah. else. Uh, yeah, but the everyone else is actually quite intriguing. One of my favorite players, men and women, is uh, Noren Gohar. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I just love watching her play and just the intensity with which she plays, and you know the, the pace that she has. And her, she's such an athlete. Um, yes. But, uh, you know, how would you describe the the women's game at at that top level? Would you agree with me there or do you see it uh, 
differently? You know, I think I think Nuran Gohar is is getting close. Um, Hani Al Hamami is coming with fire, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you know. But I think Sherbini is one step above them because she just has that extra element to her game, she, uh, and that is her ability to hold the ball from everywhere in the court. And she breaks up her opponent's movement so well that you know, like I was watching some highlights yesterday night of uh, one of the one of the recent matches between Sherbini and uh, El Hamami. And El Hamami moves like she's a panther on court. She's yeah, so yeah. fast and explosive. What's her nickname? Right? What's Joey's nickname for her? The the is it, it's it's something panther, like that. It's the cougar. I don't know what it is. It, it's some it's some cat that is so, agile. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually a cat, or but they're all yeah. named after cats, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know she is agile. She moves so well. She's explosive. But the thing that Sherbini was consistently doing in that match is because of her ability to hold and then the, having the threat of the short attack off of the volley, she can put that volley drop in or she can show the volley drop and then punch it back. And as a result of just even that one combination, her opponent has to push up on the tee and then move around her from in front of her to cover the short ball and Sherbini's awareness is so high that when she feels her opponent coming up, she pushes the ball back with the hold. And now your opponent is making a ton of effort every on every drive, essentially. And that's that skill that Sherbini has and uses consistently that Mm -hmm. I don't think any of the other ladies have, or if they have it, they don't use it nearly as effectively or as consistently. And she's so she's surprisingly deceptive that way, isn't she? Oh, it's incredible. It's yeah, incredible. You, I don't really notice it until, you know, yeah. you look carefully, right? Well, that, that's exactly it. Those are the subtleties, right? That's, that's, it. that's the other unfortunate thing about squash on TV or on the internet is it's really hard to understand those subtleties because it's happening so fast. <laughs> and when you're seeing the full court, you're not seeing it that close up either consistently. The, the, the backcourt view is phenomenal. I think it's great showing the alley. But those little subtleties, when you start seeing the effect of the movement uh, and the effect that the shots and the hold is having on the opponent's movement, it's so cool. You know, like one thing I encourage my students to do sometimes is when they're watching squash, if they want to learn, is don't look at the ball. Just look at the one player's feet. And if you want, if you want to see how effective Sherbini's deception is, watch the feet of her opponent. So if you're watching Sherbini versus El Hamami, just watch El Hamami's feet and you'll see the little subtle stutters and repositioning and all that sort of stuff that she's having to make. And you'll see the long line that she's having to take and all of that kind of stuff, which is so cool because that's, that's the thing that doesn't look like much, but it's like, it's like the jab in boxing, right? The jab doesn't hurt, but the 200th jab (laughs) might knock you out. And that's the same idea as what Sherbini is doing to her opponents in addition to all the, you know, outright winners and everything else as well. Yeah. Yeah. The ladies game was quite intriguing. Uh, I thought last year as well, uh, you know, despite, uh, I think Sherbini, won- she ended up number one, obviously, but she didn't win everything. Right. Uh, right. You know, so uh, Sobe played well uh, as well. Uh, Gina Kennedy, who, who I've had yes. on the podcast, she came out of nowhere. Uh, yeah. She was ranked as low as 100 or something. Right. At the beginning of last year. And now she's in the top 20. So, right. I haven't heard that podcast. I will after we wrap up, but was there any key takeaway that she gave about like what's allowed her to improve so much so quickly? Uh, well, I, I, uh, I just know she works really hard and you can just yeah. tell, you can just tell by, you know, her, you know, her physique well, even her physique. Yeah, exactly. Plays, the way she played. Now she's maybe the, the women's version of, uh, you know, Joel Macon or Paul Cole. Mm-hmm. 
at their, you know, infancy maybe because yes. uh, that's how she plays right now. It's just attack and not, not attack, but just such an up-tempo uh, yes. variety of squash, but without much uh, offensive, uh, you know, or much of a right. short game, I guess you could say. Right. And that's why I think Sherbini played her in one of the recent tournaments as well. And, yeah. you know, the last, there was the last one, yeah. Right, right. And there's one one or two pretty tight games of that after that Shabini's holds and the ball control and deception and everything just kind of took over. And yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Like discouraged. She was like, hey, this, what, that's exactly it, right? <laughs> well, she gets discouraged. And then Shabini, t- it takes a game or so to understand how your opponent plays. Because at that level, Shabini's awareness and perception is, is so high. And she has so much yeah. experience that she's like, okay. I don't know how this girl plays because I've never played her before. Let's feel it out and see what it's like. And then she's like, okay, now I have a good read on what her game is like. And here's what I'm going to do. And then she just like imposes herself. It's, yeah. uh, but the thing about Sherbini is I think um, I watched uh, an interview of hers that Squash TV did. It, and apparently she's been you know having some knee issues mm. on and off over the last little while. And, you know, she's, she's not old by any means, but she has been competing at the highest level now for like, 12 13 years or however long it is so the thing to watch out for her is also going to be what you mentioned around motivation but then also how her body holds up um because gohar's you know a few years younger el hamami's another couple of years younger than that so they don't really have the same kind of physical wear and tear the way sherbini might have um and they're hungry because they haven't dominated world number one they both both looked super super fit didn't they i mean gohar oh man she looked like the Terminator, right? Yeah. <laughs> Gohar is strong, man. Gohar is so hot? strong. Like, I don't, I don't, she probably hits the ball harder than most men. He does. 100%. Uh, it was 2018, the, the PSA Super Series, where that was here in Dubai. Uh-huh. And uh, this was, I think she had just qualified, but she was world number one just before that, like the year before, or one oh, okay. open or something. And then she went through this really bad period for her. Mm-hmm. And she'd lost all her matches to love, but you, I, mm-hmm. I knew at that point, I'd never really seen or heard much about her, but I right. saw her practicing. I was like, Holy Lord, like she's just hammering the ball. It's crazy. Her movement is just so, so athletic and so fluid around yeah. the court. Uh, and I, you know, you could just tell that it was just a matter of time uh, before right. she reached, you know, where she was before. Right. And it's so interesting because every player is so every player is a different human being like physiologically so gohar will like gohar and sherbini will never move the same because the physique is different the muscle fiber type is different gohar is probably like a bit more fast twitch sherbini is pretty quick too though um but you know we were talking about diego for example diego is smooth and fluid but presumably like Gohar, if I had to make a guess, yeah, he's like the Puma, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but Diego's not as like crazy fast twitch, but then his game is also designed like that. So, yeah. you know, you have to understand what your body can do, how it works, what your natural tendency is. And then you have to design your game to align with that because, and that's the different, that's a challenge sometimes for a lot of us where, you know, we watch say Rami Ashore, you get inspired. Like, I want to go play like Rami. Well, good luck yeah you can't play like rami but rami's also how can you volley the ball yeah (laughs) (laughs) other than all the crazy skill other than all the crazy skill even still like rami knows what his body was like and he played Mm -hmm. according to that i mean he might not have done the best job from a young age hence all the knee and hamstring like all those kind of issues that he had but you know that's part of it is understanding your body understanding you have to look it's like is longevity 
the the gameplay? Is that the game plan? Or is it, I just want to go full out and maximize my potential over the next five years? And I think that's often a question that it's a tough question to ask because if you want to go squash isn't uh you know isn't meant to be played for i I don't think i mean i'm 50 now and i'm struggling to i still play a lot but you know the body's always sore now right right Uh, but you know that that's all the wear and tear over the years uh maybe you just you know you go hard for a shorter period of time uh, depending on how you you know, what your game is like, I guess. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the goals and aspirations. It's what your body can handle, but I mean, the science has improved so much over the last time, like decade, two decades as well, where, you know, when, you know, even say when you were a junior, there wasn't nearly as much sports science as there is now. And, you know, all of the players now are strengthening their core. They're doing all the stability work, the mobility work. And, you know, I can remember we have a Coke between games. (laughs) (laughs) My dad tells the same stories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's hilarious. Luckily I don't, I'm sure at some point I had Coke between stuff too, but not, uh, not in recent times. Now it's like, geez, you know, you avoid it at all costs, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, their science has shown so much about that, right? Like the negative effects of, like the, when, when Coke and things like that are categorized as carcinogens, it's, uh, you know, you know, there's something going on. Where these things yeah. have been proven to lead to cancer and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one because habits die hard. Yeah, absolutely. But um yeah, so now if you don't mind, uh, let, let's get back, uh, you know, go back to the Asal uh, video. Yeah. If yeah, now like I said earlier, I saw, uh, I've seen the videos that you, that you put up, and especially the second one, I couldn't agree more uh, with the analysis that you you had. And but just for people who might not uh, have seen the videos, yeah. could you uh, maybe summarize what how you view? Uh, mm-hmm. Mustafa's movement issues and yeah and any anything else but just in a, in a thumbnail I guess because it's, sure, it's a, sure. everyone should go out who's listening and watch the the videos on uh, YouTube I'll post the the links and, and stuff on the uh, site later yeah on. sounds good sounds good yeah I think with with so first thing I want to say about uh, Asal is that he has a ton of potential and he is extremely talented he has so many of the tools in the toolbox already at the age yeah. of 20 that, um, you know, I think he can be world number one for sure. He just needs to get a couple of things lined up to make that a reality. Now, the video that I created about his movement, it was highlighting some of the movement issues that I see that would be nice to clean up so that there's a, you know, freer flowing game of squash when he's playing, you know, no one loves to watch that much squash when there are 20 decisions in a game, right? It's like start, stop, choppy. It's not fun. There's players are getting frustrated. The referees on the hotspot. Like I just watched uh, Peter Nickel and Jonathan power uh, U S open 2001. Uh, There was a bit of that. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It seems like that was there with Jonathan too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, with, with Asal, there are a couple of things that I've noticed, you know, and, and commentators like Joey and, and the, the rest of the team have called it out too, is oftentimes Asal has this big trailing leg sticking out, um, when he hits, when his opponent hits something that's marginally loose in the midcourt, 
And now the flip side of that is if your opponent is hitting something loose in the midcourt, you have the right to take up space because they've hit a loose ball. So take your space when you're hitting the ball, but there's a fine balance between taking space and then deliberately like making yourself big and getting into their line, um, preventing their movement. So I think Asal is, in my opinion, Asal is doing a bit of the latter. He's taking up his space rightfully so, but then he's also getting into the line of the opponent and, and that trailing leg is a bit of a tripping hazard. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing on occasion, if his opponent hits something marginally loose in the back, uh, kind of three quarter court area, you find him holding his opponent in a little bit to try and show the referees that his opponent is on the ball and he can't swing. But that's if you look closely at some of the video, there's his left hand is on the opponent's chest or the shoulder kind of blocking him in and the opponent's trying to get out of the way, but it's all sort of holding him in that corner. So, you know, those kind of things, I feel that he's good enough that he doesn't need to do that. Mm. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier, if, if us all, and, and I don't know what his ambitions are. I don't know what sort of legacy he wants to leave. I don't know any of that kind of stuff. Hopefully one day we can have a conversation with him to kind of understand what's driving him from that side of things. But if his goal is to leave this awesome legacy, like say Rami Ashore has left of being, you know, full of integrity, fair, stopping as soon as he knows it's a double bounce, putting his hand up when he sees his own double bounce, uh, not really arguing, giving the ball to the other guy when he knows it's like a stroke or something like that, you know, that's sort of, and then it's fluid, clean play, which makes it more fun for the audience. And it's more fun for the players, right? Because you have momentum going and all sorts of stuff is happening. So I think if Asal wants to have that kind of legacy, and I'm not comparing him to Rami because Asal has to create his own legacy, but yeah. if he wants some of that kind of positive style of things, then I think there are a couple of little things that he could clean up because at the end of the day, like, you know, like you were mentioning earlier too, he is generally like quite courteous and respectful. He never goes and like, he's not yelling in people's faces. He's not swearing at his opponent. Like he's not doing anything like explicitly belligerent or anything like that, yeah. but Except, there is that little you know, bit throwing his shirt into the uh, audience. Yeah, 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 that's after the game. After that's after, that's after, after the game celebration. That's different. Right, yeah. right, right. The you know the one thing you were mentioning earlier was um, he and we've said now is he's not necessarily screaming and yelling in the middle of rallies and all that kind of stuff. But the the kind of flip side to that, which is interesting, is that most likely. He is, and I, I don't want to say for sure because I don't know what's in his brain, but most likely when he is holding his opponent in, it's probably not an accident. Like he's probably doing that deliberately um, mm-hmm. to try to get a subtle advantage. So, you know, when, you, when you're consciously Just, uh, doing... In, in my estimation, I, I, yes. I, I agree with what you're saying there. Right. But I, I think it's probably now, especially over the last maybe year, two years, right. he knows and maybe he recognizes that he shouldn't be doing it yes and i think it's more force of habit maybe it's very likely maybe i i think he just it's something that he 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 knows he has to try to stop doing yes but it's such an ingrained thing for him now yeah yeah it 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 tends to happen probably it comes out the most when the stakes are high but that's exactly it you kind of default to your natural tendency that you haven't been able to override yet and but look at compare compare that to like a paul cole for example this is completely different but paul cole back when he was playing his you know he 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 would show some offensive variety early early in early round matches and then when it would get to a high stakes match Mm -hmm. he'd resort right back to you know being a sponge and just hitting it straight to the back yes 
kind yes. of in a, in a similar way. You, you can you can basically say the same same thing about right. SL, even even though they're they're different scenarios. Yes. I yes. Know no, you're right. You understand. No, I 100% understand. They're kind of like the opposites of each other. But yeah, I think the, yeah. the the common theme is that you default to the thing that you're most comfortable doing, right? right. And and then the kind of the thing that I like to get into, and I'd love to talk to us all about this, it's kind of like the deeper layer is we default to also what our values drive us by. So for example, with us all, he's like, okay, he might be saying this. I'm, this, I'm not putting words in his mouth. It might be that stakes are high. I got to win at all costs. So if his yeah. values are do anything to win, then he'll be trying to do anything to win. Someone else's values might be, I got to play fair, fair, what it, air quotes, fair, whatever that means to whomever it is. And whether I win or lose, as long as I try my best, I'm happy. So mm -hmm. those two fundamental values will lead to very different behaviors. And yeah. so well, I, I think, think it's happened it's, to win at all costs in a fair, you know, but, you know, redefine yeah. all costs. Yes. Yes. Play as hard as you can in the fairest, you know, according to the rules of the game. Right. And that that's what he might need to do to turn that, right. that corner. Right. Right. And, and I think that you, I think I completely agree with you that defining that winning at all costs is kind of like the way I, I always see it and the way I try to mentor the people that I mentor is you want to put the maximum effort in to the things that you can control. So there are certain things outside of my control. I can't control how well my opponent plays. I can't control the decision the, decision the referee makes. I can't control whether the ball mate takes a funny bounce. But what I can control through training would be my ability to focus my attention, my ability to play the right shot at the right time, my ability to not argue with the referee and keep my head in the game. So if I can do all of the things that I have control over, win or lose at the end of the day, I did the best that I was capable of at that point in time. And to me, that's success. If I'm still not winning the match, then it's on me to go back and analyze and see what could I have done differently? What do I need to improve upon? What did I miss, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that sort of mindset then, it's an empowering mindset because you've taken control over the situation and yeah. you've done the best that you're capable of. Like that's, that's the way I see that situation. Absolutely. Well, Mustafa may, uh, you know, maybe he should uh, ring you one of these days. Yeah, I'd love to he talk probably, to him. He I, probably, you know, he'd probably benefit from it. You know, it's possible. Like I actually sent him a message on, um, on Instagram after the first video that I put out about him where, like I was telling you earlier, yeah. you know, I was, I was a little bit peeved at some of the movements and stuff. And that came out in the video and, you know, I'll, very openly, if I'm putting out a video that is being viewed by several thousand people, I have the responsibility and the obligation to, it's like that Spider-Man quote, right? Like with great yeah. responsibility, with great power comes great responsibility. And I'm not saying I'm Spider-Man. I'm not saying I have great power, but if there are several <laughs> thousand that, people that watching. Is that Joey's nickname for you, Spider-Man? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I have that responsibility. So I actually sent him a message after I put that first video up because there were a lot of comments coming out of it. And I said, you know, I'm really sorry if this video has caused any sort of challenges for you or issues or discomfort, because I felt really bad actually after watching his match against Yusuf Salomon in the post-match interview he you know yeah, kind of yeah. broke down and when i saw that i was like no one should be feeling this way doing something that they 
air quote love. So well, that was interesting. I mean, message. in your video, you did, and I, I might have, I missed it because I watched that match and I was kind of in and out of watching it, but I yes. didn't hear the official warn him about a conduct game. And he did yeah. warn him about a conduct he did. game. Exactly. But I think, regardless, it was harsh uh, to take a game. I've, I haven't seen anyone lose a game I mean, since the guy got headbutted right. Right. years ago, right? There was none right, of that. Right. And you know, this is the thing, right? Like, if, it's it's such a tricky situation because if the situation is getting out of hand, let's just say that's the perception, then what referees are trying to do then is saying, okay, we have to step in in order to basically fix the situation and make sure that this no longer gets out of hand. So they have to take a slightly firmer approach to it so that the message is sent that, hey guys, there's zero tolerance, whether it's us all, whether it's, you know, Paul Cole, whether it's Gaultier when he was around, whoever it is, doesn't matter. It needs to be a consistent stance that says none of this is allowed, whoever you are. And I think part of what's happened, and I know Joey and PJ and the team have mentioned this, is that I don't think people are out to get him per se, but I think he's left a sour taste in people's mouths. So yeah. because of the, the stuff over the last six months or eight months or whatever, some people have said, well, you know, they've labeled him as being air quotes bad or whatever bad you want to say. Right. Yeah. He's a bad boy. So it's like, well, now this, if that's the perception you're going in with, and I'm, I'm not saying referees are consciously doing this, but we subconsciously have this thing happen. Sometimes if your perception is that he does this every time, then even at the slightest, most marginal opportunity, your instinct is going to say, well, he's, this is his, his label is that he does this. So it's his fault, but in reality, it's not always his fault. Right. So I think that's something that people need to be aware of is that our subconscious beliefs end up driving our behavior, whether we recognize it or not. And that's why it's so important to be self-reflective to say, Hey, did I actually, did I make a mistake? Did I get this right? Did I get this wrong? Are my biases coming into play? These are the sorts of things we all need to start thinking about more. And that's why I think in my video, the one that, that you watched, the more recent one, I wanted to make a point consciously that he's a young guy. All I think we got lost for a second. Yeah, yeah but you're there. He's, he's a young guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a young guy. All of us need to do our best to remember that when we were 20, we probably did some things that weren't uh, aligned with our current in my case, 36-year-old self, in your case, 50-year-old self, uh, we would look back and, you know, I think we need to give him the benefit of the doubt. I think we need to be patient with him. I think we need to try to encourage him in a positive way and not by sending hate. Because by sending that hate and being being harsh and all that kind of stuff, it's not going to help him improve in anything. It's just going to fuel his fire in some way in all likelihood. Whereas if we can show that love and that compassion and all that kind of stuff that I shared in my video, I think that it can genuinely maybe get to him at a deeper level and maybe that'll help reform. Absolutely. So, uh, I mean, we all know what happened recently, the, the three month Mm -hmm. ban. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now one, one thing that really, and not just with this incident, but it drives me crazy. Like Pete, I find like, you know, I'm not a media person or a a podcast or whatever, but, Squash is really the only media it has is itself. We, yes, you know, the, the, the squash community is the, the squash media, right? And we, you know, we're afraid to be critical of right. 
the you know for example the NHL or the the NFL I mean you you watch it uh, ESPN or, or any sports news. And these guys are just going crazy, criti- criticizing uh, the, the people that run those sports. And, you know, they're not afraid to do it. But meanwhile, uh, Mustafa Saul gets a three-month ban. Apparently, it was supposed to be more. Uh, but oh, wow. uh, no one, yeah, no, no one knows. Uh, no one knows really why, because right. there's no... Uh, press release aside from he's been banned and right. people that I've spoken to, I've asked a couple of people to come on to talk about it and they don't want to talk about it. Right. Why? I, I, just, I just don't get, I don't get it. I, I really don't get that. So yeah, um, anyways, my message was interesting. What do you think about the ban? Uh, first of all, well, you know, in the ban, I remember seeing it and then, and it said something like, and no more comments about this or something like that at the yeah, end yeah. of it. Right. Like they're not going to share any more information. You know, I, I think I think that there, in my in my opinion, I think there should be a little bit more transparency. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that there is anything wrong with sharing that. Like whatever the reason for the ban is, like because I I think by not sharing, by not being transparent, you just leave things open for even more speculation. <laughs> so and the speculation just leads to even more stuff. Like people, oh well, maybe it was because of this, and maybe it was because of this, and now you have a lot of ten different theories. theories yeah. <laughs> You the, have all the yeah, CIB had something to do with it, right? Right. right. <laughs> yeah, you never know, right? Is it, is it a sponsor? Is it this? Is it like this person? Is it that person? Is it his movement? Is it whatever? Like, who knows what it is? At least if there's some transparency, then, you know, there could consciously be some support towards some change, maybe. You know, like, I just feel that there... And again, this is just my opinion. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes when PSA made that decision. Maybe maybe they made that decision to try to protect his interests. Maybe they made that decision to minimize like random people hating for some reason. Maybe like who knows why they made that decision. But I would think that they probably just didn't want to welcome a ton of commentary related to it. Right. Um, although it's probably creating more. <laughs> you know, you when, when someone says, I have, I have a surprise. Well, you're like, oh, there's a surprise and, and you, you you can't wait to know what that surprise is. And you keep poking and prodding and trying to figure out what that surprise is. But if they just tell you, oftentimes, like you, you don't ask about it again. It's like, okay, I know now. So I, I don't know what the right approach is. This is just, uh, yeah. you know, I, I would be curious to hear what their thought process was when they were uh, coming up with that decision and then the way they communicated it rather. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe we'll hear more on the. At the at the upcoming events, maybe the mm-hmm. guys like Joey or or uh, you know, those guys might flesh that out a little bit, yeah. but maybe not because they're their PSA uh, employees. I, I, yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't uh, think they'll say too much more about it. I imagine. No, but um, yeah. So uh, also, just in terms of uh, uh, your own uh, YouTube channel, do you, what mm-hmm. do you have in the hopper? Uh, what's coming up uh, down uh, yeah. over the next little while? Well, so I actually just recorded a pretty in-depth conversation with uh, Victor Coin from oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Harvard number one, like top number 20 in the world. So yeah. he and I did another interesting one where we broke down his game a little bit and we talked a bunch about his mindset because I feel like, you know, to be top 20, to be at a prestigious academic institution like Harvard, to be so successful at two very demanding things. Um, I think there's a lot to learn from how he approaches things. So yeah. we talked a bunch about that. And then he shared some of his, uh, the nuances of how 
he, he technically he approaches the game and tactically and stuff like that. So that'll be coming out in the next week or two. Um, I'm actually scheduled to talk with uh, Laura Massaro as well, oh, which yeah, will be yeah. really, really cool. Be so yeah. yeah, she has a book that came out uh, all in. So we're going to talk about a bit about the book and her mindset and stuff like that. So uh, that's in the, in, in the hopper. And I'm as soon as the next tournament pops up, then I'm hoping to do some analysis on that tournament. You know, when it comes to a lot of the technical tactical stuff, I don't necessarily plan you're, it like you're crazy. Technical, I'm a ge- tactical, yeah. Geek, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it goes back to what we were saying. My my background, having studied economics and worked at a financial institution, and having right. like the whole analytical side of it, plus yeah. the the passion and everything, it's kind of bringing it all together. It makes for a different perspective, I think. That's awesome. Well, uh, I'm going to go back in and watch that that the whole of the Jancher uh, video. I, I I mean. That that was prob that was probably a video or those videos were the ones that yeah, you were yeah. watching when you were a kid, so it was. Yeah. Uh, it's probably uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of intel in that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what? There's there's intel in in every video that you watch. It's a matter of what we focus on. So you know, for anyone that wants to learn, mm-hmm. I would actually encourage you to watch whatever you're watching in slow motion, and you can do that on YouTube. You go to the settings and you can slow down slow down the video. And then just choose one player and one aspect, whether it's how they approach the ball and the racket preparation to their rotation or their movement, their spacing, whatever it is, pick one thing and just watch that one player for that one aspect for a few minutes. And you will learn so much about the game and the subtleties. And then whoever's watching can go practice that and actually see if they can replicate that. So, you know, when it comes to learning, creating the- uh, Rami's uh, backhand- volley yeah the little have you have you you analyzed that what what, what's the key i guess anticipation right or well it's anticipation and then when he when he just kind of like touches the ball and pops it without the cocked wrist and all that kind of stuff yeah yeah. he's he's using his momentum so you know um sebastian bomale and i chatted a bit about this where we talked about using your force and your energy to transfer into the ball that you're playing so the idea and this is all about you know technically putting power into your strokes. So what Rami would do is he was so fluid with his movement that every time he would step onto the ball, he would transfer the energy from his, from the ground up through the racket onto the ball. So he didn't even need, and then timing that with that snap of the forearm was that's what generated all that power. So if you ask him to stand totally still with his arm extended and just ask him to try to snap with his wrist, yeah, he would have power, but he wouldn't have like that crazy pop that he could generate from like anywhere in the court. It's combining that entire movement from your feet to your hips, through your core, to the shoulder, to the forearm, and eventually the racket that that fluid snap is what generates that power. And that's what the best we players could in the camp world. out here for days. Uh, uh, just <laughs> about this stuff. <laughs> Man, there's oh. Jerry, there's so many, so many technical nuances to the game. And that's my, my aspiration with the YouTube channel is to slowly bring out all of these nuances because the recreational player and the amateur does not have any idea about this through no fault of their own, but it's so hard to see on video. Like it's very hard to tell unless you play or have played at a high enough level to be able to comprehend that. Or you can somehow, the thing is we can't see the things that we don't know about. 
So even though it's happening right in front of us, it's like, you know, you, if you asked, I don't remember the exact quote, but if you asked like Wayne Gretzky, or you, if you were to talk to Michael Jordan or something like what you said earlier, they can see the game in a different way because they're processing. Brett things Gretzky a, was the, uh, the janter of, uh, of yeah, Boston. exactly. He moved around like, and he knew where the puck was going before it got there because, yeah. and, and this goes back to this one other thing, like these, um, this idea of chunking in our brain. So these chess grandmasters, you know, there was a study, I don't remember who did it, but there was a study there related to memory where if you ask the chess grandmaster to look at 20 different chess boards and those chess boards were placed in like realistic chess scenarios, they could remember those 20 chess boards. But if you place chess pieces at totally random, that was not related to any realistic chess scenario, their memory was just like anyone else. They had no clue what was going on. So what our brain does is the better we get at stuff, we create these templates in our mind where we can chunk information. So these chess grandmasters would see this one board and they would say something along the lines of, this is scenario ABC. And the next board they would look at would be scenario a, B, D. And they would do this for everything. And it would look, it's kind of like the example I shared. You play that backhand volley drop. Yeah. The ball is glued to the side wall. Well, I know from based on how accurate that ball is, my opponent's position, how far they're stretched out, their options are a counter drop, straight lob, cross court is really very low percentage. So now you've chunked that scenario. Yeah. So the the better you get, the more training you do, the more chunking you have in your brain and as a result the more you can anticipate and then when you play more and more players you chunk their game styles into your brain as well and that's how you know well hey this guy when he goes in the scenario most of the time he hits the shot and amateurs usually like i don't know uh, when you were growing up and you started playing anytime i used to do this anytime i would go into the front right corner if i was under any kind of pressure i would slam a cross court back Absolutely. because that was just like the default shot based default, on the position yeah. i was approaching and it's the easiest one to hit now anyone playing me at that time would know if i'm going there <laughs> that cross court's coming but most people don't recognize that because they haven't thought about it enough they're not aware enough in the moment they're not creating those those that chunking they haven't completed that process so my hope through these youtube videos is to try to unravel some of these chunks in my mind and share that with people so people can see the subtleties of what's going on that's perfect uh, i had well everybody should go out there and uh, and watch those videos there's so many the some great ones there and uh again i'm going to check out uh, jancher's uh video uh as soon as we're finished here, Ahad, thank you so yeah, much. My thank pleasure. you so much for today. And uh, let's do it again uh, at some point down the road, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'd love to, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm going to check out more of your episodes. I've listened to a couple, but I definitely want to check out more. I mean, you have what, over 200, I think. Now, over right? 200, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. Take care. Awesome. Many thanks, Ahad. All the best. Thanks, Jerry. Take care. Yes, we literally could have gone on for another hour there. Uh, at least I could have uh, loved listening to Ahad and really enjoyed that chat. Thank you so much to him for his time. And uh, please, again, get out there on YouTube and do a, uh, sort of go down that rabbit hole, which is his uh, uh, YouTube channel, AR Performance Squash, uh, on YouTube. And there's so much in there uh, if you're looking at uh, and analyzing a, a player's game. Well, he's analyzed several uh, of the top 
top players in the world, looking at the sort of the technical side of the game as well. Uh, great interviews with uh, with the likes of Mike Way, um, Joey Barrington, and several others. You can go in there and find something I'm sure that you'll like. And I really appreciated his time, his insight. Uh, intelligent guy, well uh, thoughtful, uh, articulate. So uh, really uh, hope to have him back on again uh, in the near future. So and now what's upcoming in the squash world? As I mentioned uh, in the intro, there's plenty on the plate. Uh, it's gotten off to a bit of a slow start, uh, although uh, what's happened outside the game has, taken, uh, has been uh, quite um, unsettling, I guess I could say, uh, with respect to Mustafa Saul and a lot of people have been talking about that. Um, he, uh, you know, with the ban, as we discussed, I'm not sure if it was handled properly, but it is what it is, and uh, he will miss the first couple of events, uh, I think up until the Windy City, and then he'll be back after that. So it's not so bad And uh, for him if you're a fan of his or if you're concerned about uh, the way things were handled. But at any rate, uh, let's see onward and upward, as they say. We've got uh, Squash on Fire in Washington, uh, the Windy City, which should be awesome. I think most of the, the top players will be playing in all of these events coming up throughout uh, February March and April, there's plenty of squash to look forward to on both the men's and women's side. So really looking forward to that. As regards my uh, squash and your squash, I hope you guys are playing and enjoying it. Uh, I'm going to be. I've been playing once, twice a week now. Not as much as I'd like, but uh, you know, I only have so much time uh, to get out there. But definitely make a point of getting out uh, and doing a, a bit of training and some match play once a week. It's really enjoyable. Uh, the body's holding up so that's good uh, at the age of uh, 50 uh, that's something that really uh, you have to take care of and be watchful of so uh, looking forward to I don't really see too many uh, videos or you know commentary on 50 plus squash and how to maintain I know how to play it you have to slow it down I uh, just watched uh, my friend Matt Bishop uh, from Halifax Nova Scotia he just won uh, St. Mary's uh, or Nova Scotia open event uh, and he played uh, a young fellow I think he was a Canadian under 19 junior champion maybe a year ago and uh, he just slowed everything down and frustrated him and uh, at the end well, I think Matt might be 40-ish I'm not sure how old he is now still a young fellow but he's old enough now where speed uh, against a younger player like that uh, is not an asset although he did uh, pick up the pace uh, when he needed to during the match but generally it was just pick you know hitting the corners slowing it down uh, mixing it up a little bit not getting carried away and then going for his shots when he had to so I think that's a recipe for a 50 plus player but I'd like to see more out there in terms of because what we're dealing with now is this padless uh, the growth of paddle and uh, I played a few times uh, uh, over the last month and it's certainly much less uh, dramatic on the body afterwards and during the, the game so I can see how you know you might want to uh, cross over to paddle at a certain age although for me as a squash player it's not uh, what I would like to do I'd like to keep playing squash so let's get some more intel out there on how to uh, you know keep the elder statesmen uh, on the court and that, that'd be good for everybody good for the game wouldn't it? 
Anyways, uh, I hope all of you enjoy your squash, as I was saying uh, earlier, and uh, take good care. Keep well. Hope your families are well. Please uh, share the, the podcast with you, with your friends and your squash community. Give us a like, a tweet, even drop a coin in the hat on the uh, SoundCloud channel. I think there's a PayPal uh, collection thing, something like that. I don't really pay much attention to it. But anyways... I hope you're all well. Take care and stay tuned for the next one. It'll be coming up soon. Goodbye now.